This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. June 24th, 2021. This is a day that should act as a watershed moment, much the way the day that existed when we heard the announcement from Kamloops, British Columbia about unmarked graves as a residential school. We know now that we have hundreds of unmarked graves in Saskatchewan at a residential school the former Maryville Residential School. And we are fortunate enough to have with us right now Dr. Crystal Fraser, who is an assistant professor in the Department of History, Classics, and Religion at the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. Dr. Fraser, thank you so much for taking some time for us today. Doing Greensby, good day. It's my pleasure to be here. I think anyone who was listening and heard Chief Cadmus DeLorme from the Coessis First Nation and heard him talk about the number of graves that were found had to be taken aback by the, the sheer number, hundreds of graves that were found. When we, when we hear this, when we know that this took place, reacting to it can come in so many different ways. Dr. Fraser, when you hear this, how do you react? Yeah, I mean, we're working with a minimum of 751 graves. That was the number as of yesterday. At the press conference, they did say there is a possible 10 to 15 percent error rate in the above ground radar process. But as they continue to search, likely that number will go up. And so, although I'm not surprised or or shocked you know i am an intergenerational survivor my mother and grandmother were institutionalized um i've also been engaged in this kind of research for over a decade and as a historian one of the first records i found at the archives was how much lumber needed to be harvested in a particular year to meet their coffin demand um and and so again none of this is surprising we've been hearing it from communities, from Indigenous families, from our nations. But it is deeply moving. It is nonetheless heartbreaking. Dr. Fraser, in trying to establish our own history, we have missed so many parts of it along the way. And this this is something that we haven't had told to enough people this this hasn't existed in the way that it needs to how difficult is it to find information like what you were talking about harvesting lumber for coffins you know ironically it's it's not that hard at all um we look at archival spaces i'm calling in today from the provincial archives of alberta where, you know, I've made an appointment to view student death records at Alberta Indian Residential Schools, and and this is open to the public. Library and Archives Canada, our national archive in Ottawa, has so many resources available online, you know, these primary documents, correspondence, letters that you can read from the early 1900s. So it's all available and, and out there. 
Um, but I understand that, you know, not everyone is, is qualified or maybe even interested in, in looking at, at the actual evidence. And this is where we have just an abundant body of, of literature and scholarship that we can draw upon, notably the TRC report and its executive summary. We have children's books now about Indian residential schools. There are memoirs and autobiographies. And so it's just really a matter of, of getting out there and taking responsibility for your own education, getting a little bit uncomfortable and being willi- willing to receive these stories with an open heart. Dr. Crystal Fraser is with us, assistant professor in the Department of History, Classics and Religion and the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. Dr. Fraser, the heroic parts of history are really easy to tell. If someone has done something, it is talked about from as high a peak as you can find. When we talk about things that are not involving heroism, that are, as you say, very difficult to hear, what is the best way to present that history so that we really appreciate its impact? That's a great question. And I mean, there's so many different ways to answer that question. Um, I, I am not a fan of naming schools or libraries or, or other places after you know quote-unquote Canadian heroes because as we've seen with John A. Macdonald a hero can quickly turn into a villain Um, but you know writing your elected representatives asking them uh, you know how a new school curriculum is going to reflect these histories Um, there are all sorts of kinds of Indigenous podcasts out there now Um, social media personalities, you know, why don't you turn on APTN, for instance, in order to get a different perspective of what is happening in the news. And so I think there's, there's a ton of ways that you could go about it. But honestly, when we're talking about the name of a school or, or a statue, um, you know, seeing the name Ryerson or Langevin or McDonald, um, you know, embossed in in some kind of uh, metal that's erected. I don't think that's ever, ever inspired anyone to go to the library and check out a history book, although I could be proven wrong. <laughs> Dr. Fraser, in Alberta, we are seeing school boards take a look at different names. You just mentioned three right now. In Ontario, we're seeing the same thing. There has been a line that has been talked about by the Reconciliation Action Group that we need a policy that has a clear trigger for why someone would begin reviewing names. What do you think we need to do to address the names of certain schools or whether they be roads or you name it, buildings of some sort that do basically take some people like Ryerson and McDonald and Langevin and make them heroes. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, you know, I have a five-year-old daughter, we're Gwitchia Gwitchin, and if I was ever in the scenario that I had to send her to a school that was named after someone who enacted policies that tried to kill my grandmother at Immaculate Conception Indian Residential School in Aklavik, Northwest Territories, 
that would be deeply devastating. Um, and so I think that there is a definite need for this. I think that there should be widespread consultation with settler Canadians, but also with Indigenous communities. And this is the beauty of, of public history and public scholarship is that we decide who we celebrate in our society and, and who, you know, we leave to the archives and, and to the history books because, you know what, the history books are still going to be written. It's, it's not as though we're erasing history. We are just choosing the names that we see on a daily basis, the legacies that we uphold. And as you mentioned, you know, there were a couple schools in Calgary um, a day or two after the Kamloops news broke that their names were changed overnight. And, and particularly in Calgary, that reconciliation working group had been trying to get that change done for two years. And so although I'm grateful that this work is finally taking place, that this in my opinion, is possibly, you know, the next era of reconciliation. Um, you know, I, I think there is still a need for widespread education on this. Dr. Crystal Fraser with us, Assistant Professor in the Department of History, Classics and Religion and the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. Dr. Fraser, you raised a point that has come up a lot in conversation, the idea that if you remove the names of individuals who, in this case, for example, had a role in the residential school system that we will stop learning who they were and, and that we will forget history. But you seem to look at it in a different way. I do. That's just it, is that we're, we're always going to have these historical figures. No one is ever going to contest that John A. Macdonald did not have, you know, this foundational role in, in confederation and the creation of this country. That's undisputed. Uh, that history is always going to be there. It's, it's always going to be in the history books. But what do we know about Dr. Peter Bryce in 1908 when he published um, this scathing report called A National Crime, basically uh, raising the red flag that conditions at Indian residential schools are harmful and they're killing children. The Department of Indian Affairs and the federal government covered that up and they fired Bryce 10 years later. Um, so I think that, you know, we as citizens, we as educators, as parents, um, as thoughtful, engaged people, we get to decide what we want to learn about and, and what can remain at the archive. And as you say, it is there. It is available. It isn't hard to find. It just takes us saying we want to know the history of this country maybe not the way that it was skimmed over but the way that it exists dr fraser thank you so much for all of your time today thanks so much for having me and this is a really really timely and important topic thank you for your interest that is dr crystal fraser assistant professor in the department of history classics and religion and the faculty of native studies at the university of alberta because the history is there, and, and it was very interesting for someone who has paid very close attention to this because she has a personal connection to it. Dr. Fraser says it isn't hard to find this. So why hasn't it been talked?
To make it to an Olympic Games, there are all these little steps along the way. One of the ones that winds up being the biggest jump can be Olympic trials. Whether it's track and field, whether it's swimming, you make it through the Olympic trials and you can decide whether or not you are going to be a member of a national team heading to the Olympic Games. For London's own Maggie McNeil, it wasn't necessarily that she had to win or place a certain spot in the Olympic trials because she has been swimming so well and there is an opportunity to pre-select athletes. But the Olympic trials were held this past weekend. Maggie McNeil was there and had more brilliant swims. We're lucky enough to have Maggie with us right now. Maggie, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Not bad. Congratulations. Olympics bound. Thank you. It's, it's definitely an exciting time. Now, sometimes you have to swim your way to the Olympics. Sometimes you get that call, that selection. Can you tell us a little bit about this year for you? Yeah, I mean, it's just been such a crazy year, so it was definitely nice to get that Zoom call and kind of get the pre-selection there. Um, it definitely didn't feel real until we just had trials where you do the swim, you get the post-race interview, kind of just like the hype that it, you would normally go through in a normal year. Um, so it was definitely exciting, and it, it definitely kind of hit me more now, I guess, than it did before. Take us back to the blocks, because day one finals had you in the women's 100-meter butterfly, where you have had so much success. You hold the Canadian record standing on the blocks, knowing that, sure, you want to swim well, but that you didn't necessarily have to do something or have to swim a certain way to make the Olympic team. Did that enter into your mind at all? Um, I didn't really think too much about it. Uh, it was definitely nice to kind of get back into the swing of swimming prelims and finals, especially for Hunter Fly, just because it's been so sporadic, uh, long course training opportunities and racing this year. Um, but I definitely knew that I wanted to put up a good time, especially with the American and Australian trials that had happened um, the previous weeks um, before ours. But it definitely took the pressure off. So I think I was able definitely to loosen up and kind of not focus too much on I need to make the team and have that be my goal. Um, but in another sense, I also wanted to I also wanted to win and show that I deserved that pre-nomination and it wasn't kind of just handed to me. So I was glad I was able to accomplish all the above. And I'm definitely feeling really confident heading into Tokyo. Amazing. Were you watching the American and Australian trials very closely? Um, I was definitely glued to the results, that's for sure. Um, just like we couldn't watch the Aussie trials, so I'd kind of catch a clip of it on YouTube afterwards. But the American trials at finals were definitely something else. And going to school in the States, a lot of my teammates um, and competitors from the NC2A were competing. So I was definitely rooting for them. So I, I, had, to, I had to tune in for those. So as much as you are going to be competing for Canada as opposed to competing with some of your teammates. Did any of your teammates from Michigan make it onto the American Olympic team? Yes, we have um, two current swimmers and one alumni on the American team. Um, and then there's at least six others um, from various countries around the world. Wow. Now, will you be going head-to-head -head with any of your teammates at any time? Two of them are male, so unless we're all doing the mixed medley relay i don't foresee that happening but um <laughs> one of the alumni i actually roomed with her on my very first uh nc2a uh trip she qualified in the 400 free relay so i will go up against her probably at some point yes 
Now, do you think you two will text a little bit or talk a little bit before, or, or is it game face all the way? No, no. I mean, I'm usually pretty pretty chill, so I mean, I'm sure I'll see her um, around beforehand. But it definitely will be. It'll come down to the moment, so we won't be too friendly right before we race. Nice. Maggie McNeil joining us. London's own getting set for the Olympic Games in Tokyo, Japan. Maggie, last time we talked, there was still a lot of uncertainty as to whether the Games would take place. And there's been a little bit of back and forth and a little more of that uncertainty. Now that you know, how much does that help in getting ready these last few weeks? I think it's definitely helped a lot knowing that there is like a goalpost at the end that was constantly moving and sometimes would disappear. Um, so I think we're at the point where at least we can plan ahead and know that that's happening. I mean, it's, I think that's been the hardest part of this year is just not knowing what the future holds. But I think my preparation hasn't changed too much just because regardless of whether or not it happened or didn't happen, um, I wanted to be prepared to swim my fastest um, at the end of July. So I think I've done a great job of that and keeping my head on Um just wherever the the goal is shifting. You'll get information for any Olympic Games as to here's how it will play out, here's where you're staying, that sort of thing. And it can be a lot of information. Have you received any information? And and just how much is there given some of the added protocols that have to be in place considering we're still in a pandemic? Yeah, so we haven't gotten too much information yet. Um, All I know is that we can only leave for the village maximum a week early. You have to leave the village a maximum of 24 hours after your last event. And then there's just a lot of like testing protocols um, before you even get on the plane to go to Japan. So I say there's a fair amount probably, um, but we're kind of taking it as it comes. So how does training work for you from now until the games? Does it change in any way? Um, the training itself probably won't change too much. I mean, hopefully we'll get into taper, um, which athletes usually uh, love to hear. It's just where you kind of – your practices get a little bit easier. You do a little bit less yardage to kind of let your body rest up and get ready uh, to go for the big the big event. Um, but next week um, on Saturday, we're heading to Vancouver for our pre-staging camp. So we'll be there for two weeks to complete like the health monitoring um, and COVID tests before we go um, to Japan. London zone, Maggie McNeil joining us, getting set for the Olympic games in Tokyo, Japan. So who decides when it's time to taper? Is that a coach decision where you arrive at practice one day and they say, guess what? (laughs) Um, It kind of is what the coaches decide, but I feel like as we get older and as we become professional athletes, it's also up to what your body needs and what um, what works best for you. So it definitely is a partnership in that way um, in which you work together with your coach to kind of come up with the best plan uh, to lead to the best results possible. Maggie, when do you start getting yourself on Japan time, or, or do you even bother to do that? Well, we were going to go and stage in Toyota, uh, Japan, instead of going to Vancouver, but with all the COVID protocols and everything, that became really challenging. So from what I've heard, they're going to implement some techniques um, in Vancouver that will help us get adjusted quicker just because we won't be in Japan as early as we'd like to. Um, I'm not totally sure what those entail yet, but I think that's the goal is to make the transition a lot easier. Right, because the time change definitely impacts you, and it'll probably impact you when you get back as well. You'll be waking up at 3 in the morning some days. Yeah, I'm sure. It's definitely harder when you come back. Um 
in that direction. But at least um, I'll be on break and won't have to worry about training. So once summer starts, I won't be too worried about my sleep schedule, which kind of goes all out of whack anyways. Team Canada and being a part of the Olympics always means you do get some of that swag. You do get some of those clothes that that make it known you are an Olympian. Has that stuff arrived yet? It's coming in bits and pieces. Um, actually, the other day, um, we got the Swim Canada stuff that we'll get, and then I've heard that the, the Canadian Olympic Committee uh, gear that the entire Olympic team gets will apparently be waiting for us um, in the village when we arrive. What's it like to, to be able to know that you know you are an Olympian? Has it sunk in at all? Um, I think it has started to, um, definitely since trials happened, but I don't think it totally will until we get there. How do you make this like any other meet? Well, it's kind of, it is pretty much just any other meet. I mean, at Worlds and at NC2As, which have been like the most stressful competitions that I've been to so far, um, my coach always reminds me that the pool is the exact same length. So <laughs> that's something that I like to remind myself of if I get too nervous. It's like you've done it hundreds of times before and it really is no different yeah the water's still clear you know it's still going to look blue from the blocks and still going to be the same yeah that's that's a great way to look at things isn't it definitely maggie mcneil joining us london zone getting set for the tokyo games about to head to vancouver for more training and hopefully some tapering so that there isn't as much mileage in the pool maggie take us through in a week how many laps of the pool would you swim? Do you know the number? Oh, my goodness. Um, it's well, too high, say, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, in one practice, we'll do maybe 6K, like, kilometers, and then multiply that by, like, nine. So it's, it's just a lot of math, and then the laps is even more math. But you know what? All of that has brought you right to here. And, Maggie, we just want to congratulate you again this has been such a, a tremendous story to follow where you've taken the world by storm and now you're set to go to the Olympics. So enjoy every second of it, including that long flight over. Uh, I don't know, bring some books, uh, hope that the movies are, are good on that one. Uh, I don't, do you sleep well on planes? I can sleep very well pretty much anywhere, so I'm, I'm not too worried about that, which is good. Good. Well, enjoy every second of it. I hope we get a chance to talk when you get back. Thank you so much. That's Maggie McNeil from London getting set to compete at the Olympic Games in Tokyo after having been pre-selected by Team Canada, but still going through the Olympic trials, winning the 100-meter butterfly. That is kind of Maggie's premier event. And if you've ever tried the butterfly stroke in a pool, you realize just what kind of a swimmer you have to be to even do it, let alone do it in a situation that puts you among the best in the world. No Canadian team has won Stanley Cup since 1993. The Montreal Canadiens did that. No Canadian team has been to the Stanley Cup final since 2011. The Vancouver Canucks did that. Tonight, the Montreal Canadiens will play the Vegas Golden Knights in Montreal. With a win, Montreal would advance to the Stanley Cup final. That is what is laid out in front of us right now. And... 
one guy who is having an exceptional career already. Let's let's not even leave this at playoff run. Career in the NHL and is 21 years old, not turning 22 until August, is London's own Nick Suzuki. Jim Van Horn tweeted out a picture of Nick Suzuki that I think came from 2014. I think he's 15 years old in the picture. There he is in a London Junior Knights uniform, yellow laces to match, or gold laces to match the gold Knights head logo that the Junior Knights were wearing at that time, full face shield on, 15 years of age. Now, basically six and a half years later, Look at where Nick Suzuki is. How have things been going in the Suzuki household through all of this run? Please welcome Nick's mom, Amanda Suzuki, to London Live. Amanda, how are you hanging in? Oh, I'm hanging really well. A little bit nervous today, but uh, all good. So excited for him today. All right. Compare the nervousness that you feel now to, oh, I don't know, when the Canadians were down 3-1 to the Leafs or Game 7 against the Leafs or really any other time in this playoff run. What's it been like today compared to those other times? Um, I think it's just the same. We know that uh, this is a big game, and we know that they're going to pull through and they're going to win. Like, we had positive thoughts. Uh, going into that, uh, into the playoffs with the Toronto uh, Maple Leafs, and I think we're just riding the same, you know, good vibes only. That's our that's our Canadian motto: is good vibes only. Nicely done. Now, a lot of people are trying to figure out how it is that Montreal has been able to do what they are doing in in kind of neutralizing top stars in the National Hockey League. Are you seeing anything that you can pinpoint that says, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's easy. They're just doing this, this, and this. Or is this still as much of a puzzle to you as to anybody else? My thoughts are that they're playing as a team together. They're a true brotherhood. Everybody is an equal on that team. And they're just, you know, everybody's playing their role. And they've just come together at the right time and they're clicking. And it, it shows on the ice. Does it ever? Yeah, yeah. It's it's truly is a brotherhood. Like they all love one another and support one another, and that's true. The veterans to the rookies, and the rookies to the veterans. And I think that that's the secret. Amanda Suzuki joining us. Nick Suzuki's mom, Ryan Suzuki's mom. As the Suzuki family has been starring in the hockey world in London for a long, long time and now moves on to the pro hockey world. And Nick is one win away with the Montreal Canadiens from the Stanley Cup final. Amanda, how about just the the way that this year has gone where things have been a whole lot different where nobody's really been traveling around a lot it's not like you were able to go to regular season games or anything like that what's it been like having almost that disconnect from what's been going on with Nick and the Canadians well it's been challenging for all of us you know sitting at home watching on the tv and not being able to be there because it's a whole different dynamics actually being in an arena and going with the vibe of the of the arena and all the fans out there but um you know we've had to do a lot of changes this year with the covid and the pandemic and we're just so thrilled that we've been able to watch hockey and that they've (laughs) been able to carry on 
you talk about the veterans and the younger players. Corey Perry gets slashed in the nose, cut for stitches, and there he is at, at the end of the game coming out to give Nick a great big hug. What was it like to see that? It, it just goes to that brotherhood, like I mentioned earlier, that they, the love for the guys, it's there, and it doesn't matter if it's a rookie or it's a veteran. They just love each other, and they support each other, and they're, you know, they're coming together as a team. It just it, it warmed my heart when I saw Corey coming out, blood dripping down his face. There's <laughs> blood everywhere, and he's out there cheering the boys on and being there to support them because that was a wild, that was a wild game. He's a guy who knows what it takes to win. Joel Edmondson is a guy who's won a Stanley Cup. How much do you think they impact what's been going on in this run, the fact that they've been there and done that? Eric Stahl, too. I, again, you know, they're they're probably telling the younger guys, you know, giving them some advice, but it's just advice and then the support. And it's just like you, like you can see, it's magic on the ice and – uh, those guys are true veterans. They've been through it all, and they have sage advice. And I'm sure they're sharing it with all of the team. And, you know, like again, it just comes down to being supportive. Amanda, Nick has such a calm demeanor about him. Is that something that even as a 3-year-old, a 4-year-old, he just wasn't phased by much? No, he's been like that since a baby. He's just calm, cool, and collected. He was never a fussy baby whatsoever. And that just, he was such a happy-go-lucky kid. And, you know, very friendly and huggy-kissy. And he's, and, you know, he's just been that way. But he's just, through his hockey career, he's just been really cool as a cucumber. Nothing phased him. Nothing. One of the things that was talked about was Patrice Bergeron and, and the fact that he he looked to Patrice Bergeron and, and how he played and kind of wanted to play just like him. Was that something he ever talked about much? Not with me, but he might have talked a bit with Rob about it. Um, but I know he's uh, brought up that uh, Patrice as somebody that he looks up to and um, follows his game and, you know, tries to play just like him. So what will you be doing tonight? Do, do you bite fingernails? Do you sit on your hands? Do you, do you have to get up and leave the room at any time? Or, or are you someone who can just sit there and watch the game and what unfolds, unfolds? I, I yell and scream at the TV, and, uh, and I have usually a group of cheerleaders with me watching the game, and we have our superstitions, and we, we follow the same routine every game night. And, uh, yeah, so we have our lucky things that we do every day. So it will be a bit nerve-wracking tonight, to say the least. Okay, well, I'm not going to ask you about any superstitions right now. Let's let's leave those secret. But maybe after all this is over and done with, you can, you can fill us in and uh, we can maybe all grab some of the, the good fortune that the Montreal yeah. Canadiens have Absolutely. had. Well, Amanda... Thank you so much for taking some time for us today. Do enjoy everything that comes tonight and and whatever comes after, because this has been one fun run to watch. And we don't even have a son on the team, so enjoy it. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me, and go Habs go. Go Habs go. Leaf fans, what do you think? Can you say it? Maybe not. Not yet. No, probably, probably not. I know that's asking a lot. That's Amanda Suzuki, Nick Suzuki's mom, just on what the run has been like 
in the Suzuki household for the Montreal Canadiens. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.